I love the words of G.K. Chesterton, who said, The Christian faith has not been found tried and wanting, the Christian, but it has been found difficult and left untried. Today I get to share the first message in this series that the pastoral staff is going to be sharing called Why I. Today's message is called Why I Believe. And so as we look at the Word of God, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. And uh, so the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking and meditating about the reasons why I believe. And uh, for me, it's, it's very simple why I believe. Because when I was growing up, my parents told me, you'll believe or else. Which worked for a little while. But you know, the main reason that I believe is because I had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. In fact, people have asked me, What's your earliest memory? And so one day, I, as an adult, I sat down and I began trying to think back, what is the earliest memory that I have? And I can honestly say the, the earliest memory I have is when I am still in my crib and I'm standing up and I could describe the room to you. And I did one time to my mother and she said, yeah, that's right. It was a blue room decorated and boys stuff and I was standing at my crib wanting something in the middle of the night or at least I know it was dark and my parents were asleep and I wanted a glass of water or something and I stood at my crib crying when all of a sudden my dad appeared in the doorway and I hit the deck because I was afraid I was in trouble and he came over and he laid his hand on my back and he began to pray for me and I knew at that moment God was real. I remember that experience vividly. And uh, I remember many, many times when my father would come into my room and lay his hand on me and, and, and pray for me. You know, as, as a kid, the worst part about being sick is you couldn't go out and play. But there was always something very special about those times when I wasn't feeling well and my dad would walk into my room and put his hand on my chest or on my head and he would begin to pray and every time I would feel better and in fact I felt so good I'd say okay dad can I go out and play with my friends now <clears throat> usually the answer was no but I could feel and I can remember God's presence in those times when, when my dad would pray for me. Now, as I grew up, I encountered a lot of people who did not believe in God. I was surprised growing up that when I found out many of my friends did not go to church because in our family, we went to church every time the doors were open. And uh, so I grew up going to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and... Uh, <clears throat> Remembering the move of God. I can remember people coming up for prayer and being healed. So as a small child, I grew up reading the scriptures, and, and one of the scriptures that always stuck out in my mind was in John chapter 4. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea 
and went back once more to Galilee. So the Pharisees are trying to stir up conflict and competition between Jesus and John the Baptist. And so Jesus says, this isn't what my ministry is about, so I'm going to go back. And there was one of three ways that he could have gone to Galilee. He could have gone up the coast, or he could have gone and crossed over the Jordan and up through Perea and around that way. And most Jewish men would have gone that way because the third option was not that desirable by Jewish men, and that was to go straight through Samaria. And the Jews hated going through Samaria because it meant they would have to encounter Samaritans. And the Jews hated the Samaritans because they couldn't prove their ancestry. They uh, were created in the, uh, when the northern tribes assimilated with the Assyrian people and created the Samaritan race. And so the, the Jews hated them. And then in 727 B.C., they even created their own place of worship, which infuriated the Jews even more. So there were many reasons why Jesus could have chosen not to go through Samaria. But yet on this day, he said, I have to go through Samaria because there was an important reason why he had to go. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And we already know why now. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, If you, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Um, I grew up on a river town in the Midwest, most of the people there worked in factories or they worked the factories. And one day there was a couple who attended my home church and uh, they had never visited before. And when the altar call was given, they went forward and received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. What was cool about that episode and that incident is the fact that, that in their possession were divorce papers. They had already been drawn up and agreed upon, and all they had to do was deliver them to the courts, and the divorce would be final. But I can tell you this, that on that day, they not only met a Savior who could satisfy them, but they terminated their decision to get a divorce. God healed their marriage, and they went on and had many years of new life. Now, I love those stories because as we look across this room and, and encounter people who have served Christ, I bet many of you have a similar story or testimony. Maybe it was like mine that you, you grew up knowing about God, 
But then, at one point in your life, you said, there's got to be more than just knowing about this historical figure. There's got to be something personal and, and, and life-transforming that happens. I, I need to really meet him and have an encounter with him. Like I said, I grew up my entire life believing in God because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I encountered him as a child, as an infant. But I can remember as a, as a nine-year-old boy going forward at a, a camp, boys and girls camp, broken because the weight of my sin as a nine-year-old weighed upon me so greatly. And the price that Jesus paid for my sins was explained to me in a way that really hit home. And, uh, and I, I gave my life to Jesus. And I, I know I gave my life to Jesus many times. I was one of those kids that children's evangelists love because every time they give an altar call, I would be going forward. I remember when my mom pulled me aside and said, Jeff, you don't have to get saved every time there's an altar call. But I just wanted to make sure. But I remember at, when I was nine years old and, and I went forward, I'll never forget where I knelt at the altar and asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And every day, my prayer is this, Lord, I just don't want to know about you. I, I want to know you. I want to have a relationship like this verse describes in, uh, in, in verse 10, because I believe this is a promise that we can all claim and we can all possess. When Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It caused this woman to say what many of us have said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. And this is the shortest answer in this whole dialogue, this, this entire conversation that is recorded for us in Scripture. When Jesus asked that one thing of her, go and call your husband and come back, all she could say is, I have no husband. I have no husband. And, and her guilt was obvious. It was already obvious to Jesus, but, but now it was obvious to her as well. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now have is not your husband. And what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So again, she tries to distract him. Let's make the conversation about something else besides my own sin. Obviously, this guy knows everything there is to know about me. So how can we, how can we distract him? Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. 
for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So the invitation was given. The woman was so close, yet she was so far away. She might have been doing some things right, but it didn't matter what her sin was. It created a huge chasm between her and God. But Jesus is saying the day is coming when true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. And that's what we were doing today just a little while ago. That is what I would see my parents doing as I was growing up, and that's what I saw happening in church. And what I remember happening many times is people coming and giving their life to the Lord and their life being changed forever. But then as I was growing up, I had a belief in God. I had an encounter with God. I had an experience with God. I gave my life to Him, and, and, and I would pray, and I would see God answer my prayers. I remember one time as a child when my grandmother was taken to the hospital, my parents picked me up from school, something they never did, so I knew something was different, something must be wrong. And they took me to the hospital and said, your grandmother's been taken to the hospital, and uh, she's probably not going to live through the night. I was in fourth grade at this time. So we went to the hospital, and I can remember in the middle of the night waiting in the waiting room. Um, I went into my grandmother's hospital bed, and I laid my hands on her, and I prayed, God, I know that you can heal her. I didn't understand what was wrong with her, but I just knew that God was bigger and God could heal her. So I prayed for her, and then I went back out to the waiting room and found a place, snuggled up on the couch, and when I woke up in the morning, the family was excited. It was a happy excited, and they said, your grandmother's awake. She's sitting up. She's totally normal. And I remember everybody was surprised, and I thought, why are they so surprised? We prayed. I prayed. We all prayed. <laughs> this is normal, isn't it? Isn't this how, how this, this Christianity thing is supposed to work? So I can remember praying as, as a child and seeing God move and answer prayers and worshiping him in, in spirit and in truth and knowing that God is bigger. God is bigger than anything, any difficulty, anything that we face. But then as I grew up, I had to go into the, the real world. Um, I started learning that faith is okay, but this is school. Here, here in school, we don't believe that. We believe in facts. We believe in science. And, uh, and I always had a hard time leaving my testimony outside of the classroom. And I always wondered, where did the, where did the divide come into play? One day I found a, an old book published in 1940 by Barnes & Noble. And it's called An Outline of Ancient History. And I thought, well, this should be interesting. 
I wonder what they were saying in 1940 about in, in secular textbooks. This is College Outline series. So I wonder what they were saying in 1940 about God and Jesus in, in college textbooks. So I'll just read one portion. This is the, the section called Jesus of Nazareth, his place in the history of Western civilization. Whatever one may think of the nature of the Christian religion and of the personality of Jesus Christ, few students of history can deny that he was by far the most important person in the history of the human race, even if the story of his life recounted in the four Gospels is entirely false, and even if the epistles of St. Paul and St. Peter are filled with lies and errors, the historian would still have to grant that the mere story of his life was of immense importance and influence in developing not only religious ideas among all the peoples of Europe and America, but also a a gospel which has had profound effect upon the lives of untold millions of men and women. Kind of, kind of positive, even for back then, isn't it? Because one of the reasons I believe in, in Jesus, one of the reasons I believe that God has a plan and purpose for each of our lives is because I believe that that God is constantly setting up opportunities for us to encounter Him. And as we encounter Christ, we find out how true and real He is. If, if you look back at Luke chapter 19, this was one of the stories that had a big impact on me growing up. Some of you probably know it well. It's about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And Luke 19, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, and he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached a spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, again, Zacchaeus was one of those people that, that the average person would have looked down on, just like the average person would have looked down at, on the woman at the well. Many people would have seen Zacchaeus as a traitor to his people. And yet, no matter what Zacchaeus did, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I see you. And we have an appointment today. It's at your house. And I'm going to go there with you. And Zacchaeus responded with joy. In fact, that's a major theme in Luke's gospel is joy. Luke uses the word joy or a form of joy or gladness over 20 times because when Jesus encountered people, when Jesus healed people, there was a lot of joy. There was a lot of, of impact that Jesus had. And uh, in fact, Jesus knows so much about where you are. If you look at the end of, uh, or the middle part of, of Luke chapter 19 and verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. 
As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to him, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. So the disciples went ahead. And when they got to that spot where Jesus said there'd be a colt, you know what they found? A colt. They found a colt. Jesus knew it was going to be there. You know why Jesus knew it was going to be there? Because he's God. He's already been there. In fact, 500 years earlier, in Zechariah 9.9, the prophet said that Jesus will ride a colt into Jerusalem. The king will come upon a colt. It was prophesied 500 years ahead of time. So 500 years ahead of time, God knew where a cult was going to be. Do you think that in 2015, God doesn't know where you are? That God doesn't know where your loved one is? That God doesn't know what you need and what you seek? He has the peace that passes understanding. He has the truth that can set you free. And the thing is, he knew where you would be. He knew where I was going to be on Sycamore Street in that crib when I first encountered him. He knew where I was going to be at that altar when I was nine. He knows where we are every day of our lives. He knows that we're going to be here. And you know what he does? I love the way that he sets up encounters. And we've been praying that the people that are missions team encounters in Ireland this week, that they will have those divine appointments. And I look forward to hearing about these guys that are kissing our team members. Because I believe those are divine appointments that God has set up and created so that they could meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords personally. And that's what I love about these passages of scripture but we know that the enemy wants to steal kill and destroy and we know that the enemy has has done everything he can to create doubt and create this um, intellectual conflict that it's impossible to believe in God and science because religion and science hate each other they've hated each other for centuries can I tell you what is true Religion and science are not at war. Religion and science are not competing. Uh, this whole idea of, of, of science and religion being in conflict, that you've either got to believe in science or have faith in God, and you've got to check your brains at the door when you walk in the church because the two don't mix. That actually didn't start happening in the late 1800s. When an author wrote a book saying that very thing, that the, the church has hated science, that book, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but people have gone back and researched that book, and it was full of lies. Not one single thing in that book is, uh, was true. But a lot of people have taken that idea and that reasoning and that logic. What I find happening all the time is that science confirms the truth of Scripture. One of, the, one of the examples that I'll give you is this. Uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton 
is a microbiologist in Stanford. And what his team have discovered is that if they can change what people think, they can change the way people think by setting them free from subconscious lies that they have believed, we can help them live longer, happier, more fruitful lives. Now, Dr. Bruce Lipton is not a Christian, but he's written a book called The Biology of Belief, which, and all of this is in that book. And again, if we can change the way people think we can cause them to live happier, healthier, longer, more productive lives. Well, that's from Scripture. Doesn't that sound a lot like Romans chapter 12? Be you renewed by the transforming of your mind? Not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? So you see, what, what God will do is he will set us free from the lies that may have been influencing our lives throughout our history. Lies that can come from teachers telling us that you're stupid, you're, you're special, but not in a good way. You know, you will, you will never succeed. You will never have what it takes to graduate from college, which is what I had a counselor tell me when I was getting ready to graduate from high school. And so every time I'm in college, and I am struggling with a class or a test or a paper, what do you think comes to my mind? That counselor said, I couldn't do it. That counselor said I wasn't smart enough. See, that's how the subconscious works. But you know what I would do? I would say, God, you have called me. You have called me. And it may be 3 o'clock in the morning, and I may be struggling to grasp this, comp, this, this material, but I know this. You have called me, and no matter what happens, I know that I will succeed. And you know what? I passed. Now, I'm not going to share my GPA with you, <laughs> but I, I walked the line and I got my diploma. I finished my bachelor's in three years which is the main reason why my GPA wasn't that great, because all I wanted to do was get through college so I could get into the ministry. But you know, there were times I wanted to take what that college professor told me and use that, and, and, and the enemy wanted to tell me that you can't make it, you can't do this. But I knew I, had, I knew I had to pass. I knew I had to get through this because I had to prove the enemy was a liar. But you know what? There's a lot of people who are going through life, and every time, every time you begin to dream a big dream, every time you begin to prepare to risk something great, the enemy will come in and tell you, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're not smart enough. You can't do that. You're not popular enough. You can't do that. You don't have the influence. And that's how the subconscious lies begin to trip us up. But if Bruce Lipton can prove scientifically that people can change their mind and live happier, more productive lives, doesn't that make the Word of God? Doesn't that confirm the truth of God's Word? Now, I also believe this. I believe that the Bible tells us that 
that we've been made in God's image. I believe that the Bible tells us that, that God was, was there with us as we were being created in our mother's womb. I believe the presence of God is God's fingerprints are all over that. Now, a lot of people would say, well, I believe in evolution. There's nothing that says that you can't go to heaven if you believe in evolution. I, I personally don't believe that, that uh, my great ancestors swung from trees. But if you want to believe that, that's, that's okay. But I, I'll, but I don't believe that because I believe that, that God is bigger than that. I believe God is bigger than that. And you might say, but, but Pastor Jeff, all the scientists, all the science says that, that we evolved. Can, can I, I say something? Not every science, not every scientist believes that. Uh, Michael B., he is not a, a Christian. He's not even a creationist. But yet, he wrote this book called Darwin's Black Box. And, and he says, you know, there are many things that, that Darwin and evolution can't explain. There are some really big jumps that evolution has to make in order to be real. Some really big jumps, like, like um, vision, um, the way that our blood clots, a lot of things like that. Um, and he uses this illustration. Suppose a four-foot-wide ditch in your backyard running to the horizon in both directions separates your property from your neighbor's property. And one day, your neighbor shows up in your yard. Remember, there's a four-foot ditch as far as the eye can see going both directions. And you're like, how did you get into my yard? Your neighbor says, I jumped. And you're like, oh, you're an athlete. You're a good jumper. But now let's say that your, the, the ditch were 15 feet wide. And you ask your neighbor who shows up in your yard, how did you get in my yard? And he says, I jumped. You'd be a little bit suspicious. Let's say that your, that ditch is a huge chasm. You can barely see the other side. It's so wide. And yet your neighbor shows up in your yard. And your neighbor says something like, well, I jumped into the ditch and there were these, these little buttes that popped up. And I, I just waited for, for one butte to appear and I would jump to that one, and the one behind me would crumble apart. And I'd just make my way across the great chasm, just miraculously as these little buttes appear for me to jump from one to the next. That would be, a, that would be hard to wrap your mind around, wouldn't it? That would be very difficult to believe. Yet Michael Behe, a microbiologist who has studied evolution extensively, says that's basically what the evolutionist believes. That's basically how we get from point A to point B. So let me encourage you. If you believe in God, you believe that creation is a miracle. If you believe in evolution, you believe that creation is a miracle. Either way, it was miraculous. And you don't have to take the word of a preacher. You can take the word of a scientist. A scientist who makes no profession of faith in God. He just says that evolution is a pretty hard thing to grasp or understand. 
The reason I say that is because many Christians have allowed doubt to arise because they may say, I don't know how we got here. I don't understand why we're here. But um, I don't know if I believe in the Bible because that's a pretty far, that's a pretty big miracle to believe in creation. Evolution is a pretty big miracle too. So whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, in the natural eye, there should be a lot of skepticism and doubt. But I believe this, that God's hand and God's fingerprints are all over creation. Now, again, I love what's happening in science because I think that what's happening is we're seeing science and religion come together. There are many people trying to disprove God through religion, but I think, I think it's happening more and more where religion is proving what the Word of God says is true. Whether you look at what a Michael Behe, what a scientist would write, or a Bruce Lipton, um, a, a secular scientist would, would say about the subconscious mind and what the Word of God says about the transformation of the, of the mind, I know this, that God is doing miracles in people's lives. And he's using his creation to do that over and over again. Um, there's a verse in Hebrews during our worship time that God just brought to my attention, and I, I felt led to share this morning at this point in my message. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So the scripture says that God made the universe through his Son, Jesus Christ. And he speaks to people today. And he has the ability to speak to us in a supernatural way to make miracles happen or to make miracles seem natural when they happen. I, I love this whole thing started not because John wanted to be famous, not because he wanted to be rich. It started because his heart was breaking for millions of children who were dying with unclean, unsafe drinking water. And the thing is, God spoke to him and he took God's creation, minerals that were already, God existed, you're not creating them and put them together in a formula, right? Is that right? Okay. All God. All God. God. That's what I love about that, you know? So what what I love to see God do is see God use people that see a need. There's a need. God, how can I, how can you use me to make a difference? And so science, science and, and a relationship with God really go hand in hand because if, that was an answer to prayer. This product is an answer to prayer. What I love about this product is John's like, if you can get this to any missionaries ministering in the third world where there's a lack of clean water, help me get this to them. Help me get this to them um, so we can save lives, so we can share the gospel, so we can use that as a platform to bring Jesus. That, That isn't new today. In the 14th century, you see, science, 
and, and full-time scientists really weren't around until the Middle Ages. And it was in the 14th century that, that men who profess God invented things like the water wheel and the chimney and eyeglasses and uh, a mechanical clock. And you might think, well, those aren't anything special. Back then they were. Back then they were, and, and it was people who believed in Christ that were trying to figure out how to use God's creation in order to improve mankind. And so, so this, this rift between religion and, and science, the church and, and science is really something that is, is fairly recent when you look at the, the scope of history. And so what I want to share with you today is, is God is very real, and you don't, you don't have to check your brains at the door to say sometimes God interrupts the natural and does something supernatural. That's what a miracle is. That's what a miracle is. In the natural, in the natural, I'm, I'm destined to die. And in the natural, this body will die, but in the supernatural, I know that, that God gives me life, and he makes my life longer and healthier and happier. Uh, in the natural, I'm not even supposed to be here. Because remember when I started this message, I talked about that couple in my home church that came forward when the altar call was given and gave their life to Jesus. And they had divorce papers drawn up. You see, that was my mom and dad. And they got married at a young age, and uh, they weren't serving God. In fact, they didn't know God at all growing up. And uh, so they got, there were a couple young people in love, and they get married. And uh, life isn't going that great. It went great at first, and then and then life wasn't going so good. And so they thought, well, maybe we'll have children. Maybe if we have children, it will draw us together. And after my mom miscarried several times, the doctor said, you are physically unable to bear children. You will never be able to have children. That only created more stress, more grief in their relationship, in their lives. And they finally decided that their differences were irreconcilable. Well, my uncle had gone off into the Navy, my mom's brother. He got saved when he was in the Navy through um, a four-square church in California. He was discipled by the Navigators Ministry. Comes back to our hometown and begins inviting my mom and dad, come to church with me, come to church with me, come to church with me. Oh, we're too busy. We need a day off. We, we need to relax. My uncle had started a business, and my dad worked in his business part-time. And so my dad was thinking, if we get a divorce, what's going to happen with our business partnership? Obviously, church is really important to this guy. So before we get divorced, I'm going to go to church with him one time just to show him that maybe we can work this out. So my mom and dad go to church. What a mistake. If they wanted a divorce, that is. 
Because when the altar call was given, my dad came forward and gave his life to Christ. My mom followed him, gave her life to Christ. They were saved. God healed their marriage. God did a miracle. I was born. When the doctor said you can never have children. And so one of the reasons I have a hard time not believing in God is because when I look in the mirror, there I am. When the doctor said there was no way that I could ever happen. So we serve a wonderful God. We serve a God who can step into the natural. We serve a God who can touch your heart and touch your life today. Can I show you one more reason why I believe in God? In Matthew 13, there's a story, uh, there's actually a parable that Jesus tells. Matthew 13. He told them still another parable, the kingdom of heaven. I'm sorry, wrong verse. Verse 45, Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Found a great pearl. Found a pearl of great price. And the merchant wanted this pearl so much that he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. To understand this parable, we must understand that who the pearl represents. The pearl represents us. Some people teach it represents the kingdom of God. No, that's not true because the kingdom of God is not hidden. The kingdom of God is pursuing us. The pearl represents us. Why would Jesus use a pearl to represent us? Because obviously Jews don't appreciate oysters. And Jesus comes from a Jewish culture. Now he's using a, using a, a pearl that comes out of an oyster to illustrate this. And, and, and this is what, what I believe because in my ministry, I've served as a chaplain for emergency responders. I've walked through with people through all kinds of grief and hard times. And, and sometimes the hurts of life are so great, it's really hard to make sense of it, hard to wrap your mind around. I've been that guy in the middle of the night who knocks on the door, and when you answer the door, I'm the one that has to tell you bad news about a loved one. And I've walked with people through those valleys. I've walked with them through that darkness. Can I tell you one thing? That when you have Christ, it doesn't mean you won't experience tragedy. It doesn't mean you won't experience difficulty. But when you have Christ, you grieve differently. So one of the reasons I believe is because this world is too hopeless without Christ. I wouldn't want to go through this life without Christ. Because as you know, a pearl is created when an oyster is injured. Have you ever gone to the movies? You're eating popcorn? Or maybe you're sitting at home with family and you're eating popcorn and you get a kernel wedged between your gum and your, your teeth. And it's like you're trying to get it out inconspicuously because you don't want to start jamming your finger in your mouth. But then finally, it's so much, it's so uncomfortable and creating so much discomfort, you just got to get it out. Ever think about an oyster that doesn't have fingers? So when that oyster's going through the ocean, just minding his own business, and a 
a sharp piece of sand or glass or something gets in that oyster and it begins to cut its soft membrane, its soft skin. It doesn't have a finger, but God gave it a, another tool to help alleviate. Uh, it's a soft mucus substance that begins to surround that thing causing the injury. And it makes something valuable. It makes a pearl. And people love pearls, don't they? Pearls make great gifts, don't they? Because they're valuable. But they were created because of an injury. Can I tell you one of the reasons I believe in God? I've given you a few. I can give you many more, but for the sake of time, I want to give you this last one because a lot of people experience hurts and griefs, and they go through those, those valleys in life. I've seen it because I've been the one that caused it when, as a police chaplain, I knock on the door and I say your loved one isn't coming home. And I've wrapped my arms around people and cried with people. I've talked with many people who claim to be atheists, and I say, why are you an atheist? And they talk and they talk and they talk, and almost always what it comes back to is if there was a God, why did my dad have to die? Why did my mom have to die? Why did my grandparents have to die? Why did my sibling have to die? Why did I have to be abused? Why did God let me be hurt so badly? If there's a God, where was he? And when I cried out, God, where are you? There was no answer. And there are times I say, you know what? I don't know why you went through that. I don't know why God didn't answer that prayer. But I know this, that he also grieved. God also grieved. Because one day when I was reading the Bible, I was reading in Revelation chapter 21, and I never connected the dots until one day I was reading in Revelation 21, 21, in the 21st verse says the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. That's one big hurt. That's one big injury. What kind of injury could have occurred to create a gate that is going to be so, so big, a pearl so big that each gate is made from one pearl? That is a huge hurt. And that's when I realized God experienced a great hurt when he loved this world so much. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God loved you so much that he allowed his son, he gave his son to pay the price for our sin, to take our place on that cross. And God said, when we enter his kingdom, we're going to be reminded how much he loved us, how much he gave for us to be there because he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to be our Lord and Savior.